Well, like many of you, our family this summer enjoyed some much needed vacation time. And our go-to family vacation is camping in northern Michigan. This year we decided to make a trip up to the Traverse City area and then we went on into the Upper Peninsula and we visited a location called the Pictured Rocks. It's on the Lake Superior shoreline. It's a miraculous view of rock structures that are multi-layered, multi-colored, they're massive, crystal clean water, and yet there was one particular image this summer that just amazed me. It's the rock formation called Chapel Rock. And you can see why, because it looks as though there's a little chapel underneath the ceiling of this rock formation. But what was remarkable was this tree, this amazing pine tree that's just seated on top of that chapel rock structure. Well, that was amazing in and of itself, but the closer you got, the more amazing the scene became because this particular tree is isolated on top of that granite rock structure, completely isolated from the rest of the shoreline. So as you approach, you wonder, how in the world is that tree surviving? It's not attached to the rest of the shoreline. And as you make your way up and and hike around the corner, you can see exactly how this tree has survived. Notice that coming from the tree is this massive root structure. Two roots about the size of the trunk itself go into the shore and draw sustenance in order for that tree to live. So here's what happened. Years ago, Chapel Rock wasn't an isolated structure. There was a bridge between the tree that you see and the shoreline, and that bridge is where those roots grew along. But over time, with the assault of Lake Superior weather and water, the bridge between Chapel Rock and that structure collapsed. And when it collapsed, what remained was the root structure. I stood there and I looked at that tree and that root structure and I thought what a metaphor that is of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The question is this, when structures around you collapse, do you have the root structure that will maintain ongoing life and even the ability to thrive? Some of you are here today and you're not yet a Christian, you're asking some really important questions and the last year has actually created this sort of collapse of so many things around you. You've realized how quickly life can change. You've realized the extent of your own mortality and you're asking new questions like you've never asked before and that's a really good thing. For those of you that are Christians, You may in the last year have sensed the way in which difficulties and hardships in our lives have tested the extent of our root system. We've discovered that the Lord is able to provide sustenance and help to us even when structures and institutions and people and culture seem to be collapsing around us. Isaiah chapter seven and eight are about that sort of collapse. It is a text that identifies a nation that's breaking, a king filled with fear. We jump back today into our 
extensive study of this Old Testament prophet. We took a break in July, four weeks in the Psalm. In Psalm 23, Evan, Bob, Nate, and Jeff did a great job. I always love it when I come back from vacation and people were like, you should have heard the sermons when you were gone. <laughs> like, awesome. No, seriously, I, I've heard them, two of them at least, and they're amazing and praise God for the helpfulness of the month of July. A quick review, the book of Isaiah is about the way in which God saves his people. There's three parts to it, turn, believe, and live. We're in the first section about turning. It's where Isaiah is calling God's people to repent of their idolatry, their hypocrisy, their disobedience, their, their lack of trust in God. Historically, the nation of Israel is divided up into two kingdoms, Judah in the south, generally more faithful, Israel in the north, generally more disobedient, and Isaiah particularly targets the nation of Judah, but he has Israel in mind, and the theme of this book is simply this. Big problems, yes. Big God, you bet. Big problems require a big God. In Isaiah 6, we saw that Isaiah had this vision of God, holy, holy, holy. We saw Isaiah receive this calling from God to go to a people that wouldn't listen. And now in chapter 7 and 8, years later, we see the nation is in the middle of a crisis. And what we find in this text are opportunities, ways for God's people to respond when things collapse. The question is, what kind of root system do you have that can hold when things around you break? I'd like to suggest to you this morning that crisis of any kind presents a number of spiritual opportunities. In other words, when life is tense, when things are challenging, when we're tempted to fear, there are unique spiritual opportunities in front of us, and I want to highlight some of those from Isaiah chapter seven today. So there's four opportunities. Number one is this, is the opportunity for familiar fear. Our world is a scary place to live. Uncertainties, dangers, threats, and insecurity are all a part of our human experience. And in the Old Testament, the people of God were regularly faced with situations that had the potential to create fear. Look at verse two. It says, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. What a image. It's a description that I'm sure that you can relate to. At one level, this idea of shaking like trees before the wind, it, it, it pictures the physiological response that happens when something frightens us. Maybe you can think of the last time you were really scared and your hands could hardly stop shaking. Maybe you tremble on the inside. Or maybe you, like me, when you're scared, you pace back and forth. You gotta do something, so I just walk back and forth and back. Sometimes my wife will say, why are you pacing? Because I'm nervous. Or, or maybe as a child, you can remember shaking your hands like this because you were scared. Or maybe some of you do that even now. Oh, kind of revert to your childhood. 
The the Hebrew word means to tremble. It means to sway back and forth, to to stagger and even to wander. When 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 we apply it to the human heart, the idea is that we bounce back and forth between a variety of thoughts. And you know what that's like. Fear does this. Uh, It's gonna be okay. No, it's not. This is gonna work out. No, it's gonna be terrible. And this is what's happening in the seventh chapter of Isaiah. But we need to know why. Look at verses one and two. They relate to a national crisis. And what I want you to encourage you to do is to sort of put yourself into this text. Imagine what this would be like. Don't don't remove yourself from this. Try and get into it to think, how would you feel if this was what was going on? I'm gonna describe to you what was taking place. He says, in the day of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So here we are, two kings removed from Isaiah chapter six, or maybe one king removed, because he says in the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uzziah, generally a good king. Jotham, generally a good king. Ahaz, always a bad king. He came to power at age 20, and unlike his father and grandfather, he was a wicked king. He gave in to the idolatry of the northern kingdom, even sacrificed his own child at the altar of Molech. The events that he describes here relate to what's called the Syro-Ephraimite War. It took place in 732 BC. He says, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So what's happened here is to the north of Judah are two nations, Syria and Israel. They got an alliance together because they're afraid of the superpower called Assyria. So Israel and Syria unite in order to protect themselves against Assyria, and they want Judah to join this alliance. But Judah, Ahaz, refuses. So as a result, they begin to attack. Second Chronicles 28 tells us that Judah paid dearly. In the middle of this war, 120,000 soldiers were killed, including the king's son, the commander of the palace, and the second in command, Second Chronicles 29.7. Additionally, in the middle of this war, 200,000 people, relatives, women, sons, and daughters were taken captives along with their goods. And while this is all happening in the north, Ahaz faces problems in the south. To the southwest, the Philistines are making an incursion in, and Edomites in the southeast are also making successful invasions. It's so common in world events. When a nation is attacked from one side, other smaller states think, here's our opportunity. They're distracted, let's go. And so 2 Chronicles 28, 17 to 18 tells us that Ahaz is facing enormous pressure. Now in the middle of this, the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, has not yet fallen. They've lost lots of battles, but the capital city is still intact, and yet Ahaz is feeling an enormous amount of pressure. The question is whether or not he's going to go in league with Syria and Israel, or he's going to find another way to get out of this jam, and the thing that he's thinking about is forming an alliance with Assyria. Consider the stress that he was under. Consider the questions that Ahaz is wrestling with. He's lost battle after battle after battle, and now the city of Jerusalem, he can see the Syrian and Israeli army beginning to set up in some form what appears to be a siege. 
It's in this context that there are important lessons and it's important to understand that in this situation is when Isaiah appears to Ahaz. You know, it's interesting to me how much of the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament, is written in crisis. In the New Testament, so many of the epistles are written because they're addressing conflict or some deeply concerning issue or some frightening persecution that is happening to the church. Why do I raise this? Well, not only for you to understand the context of what's happening here, but also I think it's just really important for us to remind fellow Christians that the experience of fearful circumstances is very, very common. Some Christians in our present environment, maybe even you, are emotionally responding right now, not just with fear, but as if scary things that are happening are really strange. And as a result, some of us are running to anger and frustration and bitterness. Some Christians just seem to think that they should have a life that never deals with fearful issues. For them, I think they read the Bible, fear not, as if the Bible means you're never going to experience fear. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, he said, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good heart, I have overcome the world. You see, part of Jesus' strategy and one of the ways the Bible helps us is for us to see our trials and our emotional struggles as normal in the Christian life. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12 tells us to not be surprised when trials come. When I was in college, I participated in intercollegiate speech competition, which meant that on a regular basis, both my freshman and sophomore year, I was involved in a form of debate, if you will. And one of the things that that experience did was taught my mind how not to panic when I'm up in front of people. You know, this morning my alarm went off and I thought about this sermon and I'm, I was nervous. And you know why I'm nervous? Because I'm speaking in front of people. But over the years, I've learned to not allow that feeling that is always there. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, are you nervous on Sunday? I said, always. To not allow that emotion to shut down the rest of my mind and my heart. I wanna to suggest to you that some of us need to embrace that as it relates to fear in the environment in which we live. I know that in our own culture, there are many things that are scary and confusing. Some of you are finding it increasingly difficult to navigate cultural issues at work and you wonder, I don't know how much longer I can work in this space. Others of you are deeply concerned about the direction of the country or the direction of evangelicalism. Some of you are fearful of what kind of world your grandchildren will live in or what will happen if a particular political leader or a movement gets traction. 
Other people are worried about the state of their relationships, their family members, or particular health concerns. And listen, I'm not denigrating or saying that these concerns aren't legitimate. On the contrary, what I'm saying is, is that we ought to, as Christians, expect that there are going to be big things that are scary. But the question is whether or not we will see those and stop or say, my king is in charge. We should see moments of crisis as opportunities to live through our fear because for the Christian, listen, fear is familiar, but it's not fatal. I'm just telling you, 2021, 2020, this is a great time to be alive. It's a hard time, for sure. But you know what? This is an opportunity for the gospel to advance, for Christians to demonstrate who they really trust. When things around us begin to collapse, for us to say, my refuge is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So so rather than being the kind of people who are walking around, either publicly or privately going, oh, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? Shaking like this. We need to say, stop. Stop. We're acting as though these things are the most important things in life. And this is a moment for us to realize, even though the bridge around me collapsed, I got a root system that's gonna continue to sustain me. It's an opportunity for familiar fear. Here's the second thing. It's an opportunity for thoughtful reflection. It's not just enough to see the fear and go, okay, this is normal. Now what do we do? So when the crisis looms as an opportunity to consider the moment, to ask yourself, who's God here? If we can just maybe get over the presence of fear, it's an opportunity for us to then apply our faith. Sadly, however, we often fail that test because we don't realize the opportunity that's right in front of us. Look at chapter seven and verse three. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you, and share Joshua. That's his son, whose name means a remnant will return. And meet him at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, I know that has no emotional resonance with you. This is the water supply for Jerusalem. If you have a siege that's beginning to form and you're a king, You're gonna go out and check and see how is the water supply and what are we gonna do to protect ourselves if the attempt is made to cut off the water from the city because the fastest way to make a city buckle under a siege is to cut off the water. So here is the king and commentators suggest he's supervising the protection of that water source for this coming invasion and God through Isaiah delivers a message to him. Note the four statements. He says to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. I mean, think of this moment. You have a king who's faced all kinds of losses. The pressures are mounting, and Isaiah comes out to him, and he says, be careful, be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart faint. What do those mean? Be careful, the idea is Ahaz, think carefully. Don't let fear cause you to lose your spiritual mind. I mean, seriously, fear often makes us act as if Jesus is still dead. Be quiet. The king needs to calm his heart, to rest in God, and be at peace. 
How many of you are emotionally, uh, not emotionally, are verbal processors? Let me see your hands. You, you, you talk through problems out loud. Keep your hands up. We're proud of it, right? Right? All right, good. I, I would be one of those. So you can pray for my wife because when life is hard, it's exhausting. And there have been times when she's had to lovingly say, I think you've talked about this enough. And you know why I'm talking about it? Because here's what I think. I think if I could just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, eventually I'm gonna be able to figure out what to do. But beloved, there are some times when all the talking in the world isn't going to help you know what to do. The best thing you can do is be quiet. Get on your knees. Maybe go to bed and just stop talking. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. What's happening here is Ahaz is giving this situation more emotional control over his life than what he should. And then he says, do not let your heart be faint. He's saying to Ahaz, you're, you're being timid. You're allowing discouragement to seep into your life and it's, this is going to be infectious. It's interesting, isn't it, that when the king is busy, busy, busy making preparations for a potential siege, that this message is delivered. Some of you aren't verbal processors. No, you're house cleaners. When you get fearful, what you do is you clean, you, you straighten, you, you do a project. You're just busy, 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 busy. Or something's wrong, so you analyze and you research and you, you, you Google your brain to death trying to figure out what, there must be an answer that you're, you're missing. And so you look for research and articles and it just is becoming an obsession. And part of the reason that you're doing it is because you're trying to help your heart be encouraged and you're looking in the wrong place. He's trying to make the city secure. He's working the political system. He probably has sent envoys to Assyria. Ahaz must have felt an enormous amount of pressure and in the middle of that, Isaiah asks him to think in spiritual categories. Skip ahead to verse nine. Isaiah says this to him, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Wow. NIV says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So with the looming pressure of an attack, Ahaz receives this exhortation from Isaiah. If you look at verse six, God knows what's happening. He says, go to verse five, because Syria with Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, it's like God says, I know what they're saying, Ahaz. Let's go up against Judah and terrify it. Let's conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Chabil as king in the midst of it. In this moment, what Isaiah is doing is telling Ahaz to consider God's perspective in this moment. I mean, Ahaz is terrified of Israel and Syria, and God, in the previous verse, verse calls them smoldering stumps of firebrands. Isaiah thinks they're a blowchorch, and God's like, no, it's a sparkler. So what is... What, is this, what does fear look like in this environment? Well, it looks like despair and disillusionment. D despair sounds like this. This is impossible. You live as if God has forgotten you. Or disillusionment. This isn't worth it. This is just too costly. 
These are byproducts of the same kind of spiritual failure, and the problem is that normally when we go to those two ditches, we haven't taken time to consider who's on the throne, who's in charge. What happens is we're so myopically minded, so busy trying to figure out what's going on, trying to analyze what's happening, so emotionally agitated that this is taking place that we never stop to ask ourselves, what is God trying to do here? We act as if the whole world depends upon us. Why are we doing that? So Isaiah here is helping us to see that when the world around us is breaking, the challenge is to be thoughtful, to be at peace, to be emotionally balanced, to be spiritually encouraged. Instead of wondering if God is good or if he can trust, be trusted, we can dip into disillusionment, even throwing in the towel. And you need to know that major leaders in biblical history were there. Moses in Numbers 11 was there. He said to God, I'm tired of these people, just kill me. <laughs> he said that. Elijah in 1 King 19, I've been faithful, I'm just like my, my forefathers, I've failed. And God says to Elijah, what are you doing here? Perhaps you're there today, find yourself busy and anxious, fearful and angry, feel agitated and easily annoyed. Some of you are spending way too much time trying to figure out what's going on in the world and where everything is headed. A couple weeks ago I just realized, why do I do this? And here's what I was doing. In the morning I'd make my coffee and I'm one of those coffee snob people, I'm not gonna use Keurig, that's, that's for others. Um, so. <laughs> Um, I, I've got to pour over, right? And so I'm going to stand. The thing is, it takes six and a half minutes for me to make my cup of coffee. So I'm standing over there. And when I'm standing there, what I'm doing is I'm flipping open my phone. Here's what I was doing. And I was just scrolling through the news, scrolling through social media. So within the first three and a half minutes of my morning, as I'm pouring my coffee, I'm scrolling through with everything that's wrong with the world. And I said to myself, this is not very smart. Because it was creating anxiety and worry and fear before I even had caffeine in my system, right? I mean, so that's just unwise at lots of levels. So you know what I started doing? I started playing music in the mornings. Get some praise jam music going, just to remind me who's in control. And I'm telling you, it's a simple thing. It's helped my heart. Isaiah says to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart faint. And can I remind you today, church, Jesus already won. It is just a matter of time until the devil overplays his hand. God has promised he's going to help us. And listen to me, the Lord is still our shepherd. An opportunity for spiritual reflection. Third, an opportunity here now for spiritualized excuses. What happens next is remarkable. Verse 10, the Lord says to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So God graciously says to this unbelieving king, I know you don't believe, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'll give you a sign to help you in your unbelief. So ask me anything so I can prove to you that I got you. He's fully aware of Ahaz's unbelief. He knows that Ahaz is trusting in himself. Now remember, God did the same thing with Moses in Exodus 4. Moses is like, I can't speak. People aren't gonna listen to me. God says, put your hand in your coat. He puts it out, leprous. 
put it back in, healed. They're not gonna listen to me. Throw your staff on the ground. Snake, pick it up. Staff. So sometimes God does this. He was willing to do this for Ahaz, but notice what Ahaz does. Verse 12, he says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Well, isn't that interesting? Do you see what he did? He made his unbelief sound spiritual. It's the same verse that Jesus quoted when the devil tempted him, and he said, I will not put the Lord my God to the test. It's in the Bible, and Ahaz quotes it. What a missed opportunity, but don't miss what it is that he did here. God was ready to strengthen the heart of this king, but he refused. And what's more, he even made his refusal to believe God appear as if he was being obedient and even faithful. Aren't you glad you've never done anything like that? <laughs> oh, beloved, when we're, if you've been around church world long enough, you know we do this. We find convenient and spiritual sounding ways to hide our lack of faith. We say things like, well, let me pray about that. Or, I feel peace about this decision. Or, I'm just standing for truth. Or, I'm being persecuted. Or, the Lord has called me. Now, all of those things could be really good things to say in the right context, but in some cases, we use them to hide a lingering excuse. Because especially in crisis, we can spiritualize our excuses. One commentator suggests that Ahaz's rejection of God and what God might have to tell him is an indication not merely of a little faith in God. He's not interested in trusting God for he probably has already developed his own plan to put his trust in Assyria to deliver him from Syria and Israel. So therefore, Isaiah says, I'm done. Verse 13, hear then, O house of David, is it too much for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That word means God with us. He tells Ahaz, there's gonna come another ruler at another time who's really gonna trust God and he's the one that God is gonna to use to bring the kind of kingdom in that you won't bring in because of your unbelief. In the meantime, verse 17, God's going to bring judgment. Verse 18, they're going to be overrun by foreign countries. Verse 20, they're going to be humiliated. Verse 21 and 22, they're going to be impoverished. They're going to be ruined, according to verses 23 and 25. And what we see in Isaiah 7 is this indication of this ruler who's going to come that is going to rule in justice and faith and power and the Gospels. Matthew chapter 1 and 23 references Jesus fulfilling this very prophecy. Can I just remind you that the solution to a faithless world is the intervention that we desperately needed and it already came to the person of Jesus. He was rejected by religious leaders, he was accused of blasphemy, crimes against the temple, and our problem as human beings is so bad and so tragic that we need divine intervention to rescue us from our sinful actions and our spiritual excuses. So. There's some of you who are listening to this message today, you're not only fearful, you're full of excuses as to why you can't trust God. And it may be that today's the day you just need to say, enough already! Enough with my silly plans and my, my emotional wrangling inside of my soul. I'm spending so much energy in all of these things. I simply need to say, God, would you help me? 
But some of us who have spent so much more time researching and analyzing and thinking than we have praying, we have access to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we think Google has the answer. <laughs> Jump to chapter eight. Quickly, it's an opportunity for humble hope. The Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses. I went to the prophetess, she conceived and bore a son, and he says in verse four, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, that's the capital of Israel, and the spoil of Samaria, I'm sorry, Damascus capital of Syria and the spoil of Samaria, that's the capital of Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, God is saying, I'm gonna make good on my promise. And then here's the most important part, verse five. The Lord spoke to me again and said, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Ramiah, therefore the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. What's he saying? He's saying, because you won't listen to the still, small, humble, quiet voice of the sovereign God, and you wanna trust in political maneuverings and military might and earthly kingdoms, I'm gonna give you what you want, but you won't trust in the gentle, flowing brook of the King of Kings. The NIV translates verses nine and 10 with these words. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, it will be thwarted. Purpose your plan, it will not stand. Why, here's why. For God is with us. If you're a follower of Jesus today, can I remind you that there are root systems of theology that hold when other things collapse. What are those truths? Truths like these. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Promises like all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. Promises like the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, Matthew 16. Promises like nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Promises like when Jesus left the earth, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen. These theological tap roots are the things that hold in the midst of the collapse of anything and everything. And every crisis in your life, if you're a Christian, is just an opportunity to see how true these promises really are. So instead of looking at your life and going, oh no, look at these situations and go, Let's go! Let's go, let's show the world the power, the hope, the beauty of what it means to live in the resurrected Christ. It's another opportunity to affirm that no matter what happens to me, even death, God is with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you proved that in the cross 
and that all of our hope is completely contained in your name. At the name of Jesus, our sins were forgiven. At the name of Jesus, demons flee. At the name of Jesus, there is hope for our future. And so God, in the midst of all kinds of things that collapse around us, would you give us the faith to trust and believe in the King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.